Welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Church. Covenant Grace Church is one church meeting in multiple locations. This message was recorded at our Menifee campus. Father, we come before you as we open your word and uh, we're excited to hear what you have to say. Lord, it's your word. It's not my word. It's not even Paul's word, Lord. It's your word written through Paul. And uh, we pray, Lord, that you'd open our eyes to see what's here. You'd open our hearts to love what's here. And you would, Lord, uh, change our wills so that we desire to do the things you've commanded. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're in this series, uh, Finally Free. It's a, a study in the book of Galatians. And the book of Galatians really is a letter of freedom. Paul wrote it about 48 AD. And the story behind it is, is that he had some people he deeply cared about that were falling into a religious way of thinking that was going to enslave them. Okay? They were going to be enslaved. And we'll see how that was about to happen. Um, But Paul was the first one to bring the good news of Jesus to the Galatians. He leaves after he had preached the gospel. They heard the gospel. They heard that through Jesus' life and death and resurrection, they could be right before God and adopted into God's family. They believed it. They formed churches like ours, uh, church families in that area. Then he went to go preach to other areas because he was a missionary. And then he hears word that some other missionaries came by, and they were distorting the original message. And what they were saying is they were saying that there were additional requirements besides trusting in Jesus to be right before God. They were saying, if you really want to be a real Christian, if you really want to be accepted, if you really want to be a part of God's family, then you need to become Jewish first. The reason was, is that they said something like this, you know, Jesus, uh, Paul did preach rightly that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, but if you're going to have a Jewish Messiah, doesn't it make sense you'd have to become Jewish first? And so they told him they need to be circumcised and keep the Mosaic law and that lifestyle of kosher and all those different things, keep the festivals and the feasts and all that to become truly Christians, truly accepted. We call this as legalism. Now, legalism is a term that's used for everything now. I mean, people just say, like, if you say, hey, the Bible says you should do it, they're like, oh, legalism. That's not legalism. That's, that's Christianity. That's normal. Um, legalism is when you add something to the finished work of Christ. So there's what Christ has done for you to make you right with God, and then you need to add something to have acceptance, add something to be truly one of God's kids. And that's what he's writing about. And for, the way he starts here in verse 8 is he wants to show them what their life was like before. He's like, let me remind you where you came from. Look at verse 8. It says, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that are by nature not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to become once more? Um, Paul had met these Galatians. They didn't know God. They didn't know the one true God. And they were enslaved to cultural gods. They had all these different gods for all these different things. They had these idols that they worshipped. And I know as modern people we go, oh, silly ancient people and your idols. You know, we look at them with their statues and their offerings to idols and we think, oh, you know, simpletons. There's, you know, obviously those can't do anything for you. But when we say that, guys, we, we don't recognize the fact that we too worship idols. We just don't give them names, the god of or the goddess of. We don't do that part. We don't make a statue. We don't make physical offerings to it, but we too have idols. Every culture has idols, and the idols of our culture can't save us any more than the idols of their culture could. Um, For example, I could just give you one. There's a lot of idols we could talk about, but let's just think about the idol of beauty and youth. In Southern California, do we worship the god or the idol of beauty and youth? We do. How do we know? Well, measure it in the amount of time and money that's spent on it. You say, well, I don't make offerings to idols. Really? 
There is a type of offering, there's a type of service to this idol, and there's a type of worship of it. You see it in the time and the money that's spent. You see it in the things that we value the most. Before you, when you ask yourself, when you, before you get in the car and go to work or whatever, and you say, am I ready to go, what do you do first? You look in the mirror. Interesting, huh? You don't look at your heart. You look in the mirror. You say, now I'm ready to go. Why? Because that's the idol we worship. How well does this idol of beauty and youth save us from wrinkles in age? I hate to bum you out this morning, but it doesn't save us. You know, you guys look good. I always say that. I always have to follow up with that. But I do not, you know. It, it comes, right? This idol can't save us. The, the hell that this idol is saving us from wrinkles in age, we do all this worship of it, and it doesn't give us what it promises. And all idols are like that. And I could do that with dozens of cultural idols like approval, uh, financial security, pleasure, romantic relationships. Our culture has its own idols. We just don't call them by, uh, we don't name them and, and give them a statue and, and, and kill animals and pour their blood before them. We, we do it more subtly, but we all have idols. Um, and they don't save us, right? They don't save us. They don't give us what they promise. And so we can't kind of look down our noses at ancient people and say, oh, you know, aren't they silly? No, we have our own counterfeit gods. And they don't save because look at verse 8. It says they're by nature not gods. They're not real, right? They're, they're gods of our imagination. They're counterfeit gods. Our, our cultural uh, idols enslave us just like they did the Galatians, right? But when the Galatians heard, guys, the good news of Jesus, they were freed from their idols of their culture. That's what he's saying to them here. He's getting, you used to worship these idols of your culture, and now you don't. You don't go with the rest of the culture. Why? He says in verse 9, but now you have come to know God, or rather be known by God. That's what changed things. They came to know God, and then I love, or rather be known by God. It, isn't, don't you love that? Don't you love that description of true saving faith, that you know God, or rather that you're known by God? It shows the priority. It shows that God, we looked at last week, that he adopts us as a father. He found us, right? He, he drew us. He rescued us. He brought us into his family. We didn't so much find him. He found us, right? Um, he's the seeker, right? It says, but now that you have come to know God or rather be known by God. It, it, it points to that gift. The good news, guys, is, it, is, is a good news or a gospel of adoption, but there was a problem, right? Take a look at verse 9. These guys were starting to be enslaved again, okay? So they were enslaved to the idols of their culture, and then they're getting enslaved again. Look at verse 9. You think, well, did they get enslaved again to the idols of their culture? No, it's something worse. Look at verse 9. But now that you have come to know God, or rather be known by God, how can you turn back to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to become once more. You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I have labored over you in vain. What's enslaving them now? It's not the idols of their culture. It's something different. It's the idols of religion. Look at verse 10. He says, you observe days and months and seasons and years. What he's pointing to there is he's pointing to the Mosaic Covenant. That was the big risk here, right? These people came in and they said, yeah, you're trusting in Jesus, but if you really want to become truly sons and daughters of God, you need to start keeping those old Mosaic laws. And he's pointing to those here when he says days and months and seasons. He's talking about these festivals and these feasts and these special days that they had to observe. And he says, I'm worried about you guys. You're turning back to these laws. They were, they were meant to be temporary. They were meant to point to Jesus. They were meant to be like guardians to lead us to Christ. And, and, then, and then so that we could trust in Christ. But now they're going back and they're being enslaved by legalistic religion. And guys, this isn't a win. It isn't a win for somebody to go um, enslaved to the sin and idol of the culture, to, to be kind of converted and then become a slave of religion, legalistic religion. That's not a win. 
That's slave to slave, different type of slavery. And he's, that's why he's so intense for these people. He's so upset. He's like, don't miss the gift of your adoption in God. Don't go into this slavery. Look how intense he is. Look at verse 11 through 20. Paul is upset. Have you guys ever had somebody in your life, and I'm sure you have, that you saw, this person is just so bent on ruining their life. You just see decision after decision, and you see the pathway, you see they're headed for a cliff, and, and, and you're just, you're, you're trying to plead with them. You're saying, don't go down this road. No, don't do this. That's what Paul's doing here. And I think you can totally relate to his range of emotion. Take a look at it. Paul, and he's afraid. Paul's afraid for them. Look at verse 11. I'm afraid that I've labored over you in vain. You know, Paul's sad. He's like, we used to be close. You used to trust me. Now, for whatever reason, you don't. Look at verse 12. Brothers and sisters, I entreat you, become as I am. I also became as you are. You did me no wrong. You know that it was because of a bodily ailment that I first preached the gospel to you. And though my condition was a trial to you, you didn't scorn or despise me. It's like, for whatever reason, the circumstance that he came there, he was some illness or something, they helped care for him, and it, it provided an opportunity for him to preach the gospel, which is super cool, showing that suffering and trials sometimes give you these tremendous opportunities. This whole church happened, all these churches happened because of his disease, you know, got him there in the first place. And he's like, you cared for me, you loved me. Look at verse 14. You received me as an angel of God. Like, he's talking about, like, we had a close relationship. Things were good. You trusted me. He says, he says, as Christ Jesus, you received me as if I was Christ Jesus. And then look at verse 14. I love this. He says, for I testify that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. I love that. Now, that's a relationship, right? Like, if some of you are close with friends. You have a good relationship. They'll do anything for you. Bro, you need anything? I'll do anything for you. Gouge out your eyes and give them to me. Okay, you know, like he's saying, like that was the kind of relationship they had. This closeness, this brotherhood, this brothers and sisters in the Lord, and, and they have this, and, and it's evaporating. And then there's the saddest line. I think 16 is the saddest line. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? Isn't that sad? You ever been in that situation? You see a friend or a family member, they're headed for a cliff, you know, they're just going, taking their life down down the totally wrong direction, and you're warning them, and what do they think? You're just trying to ruin their fun, you know? You're just trying to ruin their pursuit of happiness, right? They're thinking like, no, 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 we found the truth, you know? This is it, and he's like, no, 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 and he's like, how, you know, we were so close, and now I'm your enemy because I tell you the truth? Super sad. Paul feels, feels protective. Look at verse 17. He's speaking of the false teachers. He says, they make much of you for no good purpose, they want to shut you out that you will make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, but not only when I'm present. What he's saying is these are, these are con men. You know, these people, they're, they're here and they want to help you out, supposedly, and they want to, they're paying a lot of attention to you, but what they really want is they want to shut you out. They want to get you involved in this kind of legalistic system so that you'll look to them as authorities, so that you'll follow them. They're out for themselves, right? And we see that in religion, don't we? We see that hugely in religion. We see that hugely in the Christian church, of people that are out for themselves. It says they want to be made much of. They don't want to make much of Jesus. They want to make much of themselves. And he feels protective about them. And then he agonizes over them. Look at verse 19. My little children, for whom I am again in anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. You're like, uh, okay. Like, that's intense, right? Like, I am so agonizing over you and whether you would walk away from grace and put yourself under the law that I feel like I've just like, been having contractions 
you know, that I'm just like, under all this, I feel like I'm agonizing in childbirth. You think about like first century, this is home birth, this is no epidurals, right? This is life-threatening and painful situation, right? Agonizing over them, pleading for them. And then 20, I can totally relate to 20. He feels awkward about it. He feels bad about it. He's confused about how to help him. Take a look at 20. I wish I could be present with you and change my tone, for I'm perplexed about you. You ever been in that situation? You're like, I don't know if I'm coming off too strong or not strong enough. I don't know what I'm doing here. I don't know if I'm doing this right. I wish I could be there. I'm so far away. Hear bad news. Got to write a letter with what I know. But, but I don't know what's going on with you. I, want, I wish I could be there. Maybe, maybe I could soften this. Maybe I need to firm this up. I don't know. You been in that situation? Not knowing if you're being too, too harsh or too firm? And then Paul says in 21, he says, do you, do you see what you're doing? He says, tell me. You who desire to be under the law. Under the law meaning like that I am going to base my acceptance before God and how well I keep God's commands. That I'm going to check them all off and if I get 100%, then I can know I'm right with God. He, goes, he says this, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? <laughs> He's like, have you not read it? You know? Have you not read the law? Have you not seen what it commands? You think that you can do everything that's in here in a way to earn your relationship before God? It's crazy. It's a fool's errand. Have you ever read it? You know, to try and earn your relationship through this is impossible. It's got to be done for you. This isn't something you can do for yourself. He's saying legalistic religion, guys, is slavery. And then he's got a very artsy illustration. And Marcel and I were talking about the artsy illustration here. Um, verses 21 through 31 is a very interesting and artsy and multi-layered. We were talking about how multi-layered this illustration is from the Old Testament. And so um, I was studying this week, and I was reading Philip Ryken's commentary on this, and he says, the end of chapter 4 happens to be one of the most difficult passages in the New Testament. And I was like, oh, good. You know, like, great. So I'm going to read this, but what I need from you guys when I read this, focus. Okay? I know you have only a certain amount of focus. We all do. Give me like five minutes of really strong focus, and then you can kind of chill out after because I have a visual aid after that, okay? So we're going to do this. Ready? Okay, here we go. Verse 21. He says, tell me, you who desire to live under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written, Abraham had two sons. Okay, I want to stop there for just a second. The false teachers are saying, if you're going to be saved by the Jewish Messiah, you need to be, a, uh, you need to be in God's family. You need to be a son of Abraham. You need to be part of God's covenant family. And he's saying, so do all these laws, then you can become a son of Abraham, then you can become a Christian through the Messiah, right? Be saved through the Messiah. That's what they're saying. And what he's saying here is, keep in mind, Abraham had two sons, not one. Okay? Start there. Okay, here we go. For it is written, Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. For the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. Stay with me. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above, or in heaven, is free, and she's our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Uh, break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted the one who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. 
But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall have no inheritance with the son of the free. So, brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Okay, so he's doing something super artsy here. And this thing has multiple layers. And we're not going to do every layer because I think I would lose you and it wouldn't be helpful. So let me tell you what the layers are, though, so you can go back and look at it. There's three layers here. First is a layer of the mothers. So you have Sarah and you have Hagar. Sarah represents the covenant of grace, okay? Uh, represents a covenant that completely, all, all the terms of it are met by God, ultimately through Jesus Christ. That's who Sarah represents, a mother, a covenant, a promise of grace through Christ, okay? The other woman, Hagar, represents uh, the covenant of works, ultimately the covenant, the Mosaic covenant. It's, it's a covenant that wasn't meant to save, but it was meant to show forth who Jesus is and Show us that we need Christ, right? And so Hagar represents that covenant. So there's two women, right? Two mothers. Then there's two cities here, okay? There's an earthly Jerusalem, which is where these missionaries are from, and that's not, uh, that's not incidental. That's actually meant. These guys are coming down from Jerusalem. He's saying that there's an earthly city of Jerusalem that's in bondage, that, that's all law, that doesn't have a way of salvation, that's in slavery. And there's a heavenly Jerusalem, which is in heaven and Revelation 21 talks about it coming down eventually to here and, 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 and the world becoming heaven and earth in one place. So there's two women, two cities, and then there's two sons. I'm going to focus on the two sons. There's Isaac and Ishmael. Isaac being born kind of miraculously from a very old woman um, and, and through a woman that was free. And, um, and then there's Ishmael who was born through a slave woman uh, and born into slavery by natural means. Now, I'm not going to address all the layers because I think it would be too tricky and it wouldn't be helpful. But I want to dig into that, that one layer of the sons. Paul was thinking, okay, so what he's doing is he's thinking about these people, and he's thinking about the gospel of adoption, that we're adopted by God through, by grace, through faith. And, he's, and then he's thinking about these legalistic teachers. Now they're bringing in this legalistic religion, which is, you know, if I obey, then I'll be accepted and, you know, keep all these laws. And he's thinking back to himself, and he's thinking, you know what? There's a story in Genesis that illustrates this wonderfully, Okay? And he starts to think about the story of Abraham and Sarah and Hagar. And he sees how that story points at how the gospel is different than legalistic religion. So that's why he employs this. And he calls it here an allegory. Okay, allegory, what's an allegory? An allegory is a story where the people and places and events represent deeper spiritual truths. How I many of you guys have read Pilgrim's Progress? Very Christian thing to do. Pilgrim's Progress. If you haven't read it, you should. It was written in the 1600s. John Bunyan, don't let that scare you. It's very readable. It'd be great for you to read to your kids. There's kids' versions of it. It's great. But it's an allegory. It's a very obvious allegory, though, because it's like the main dude's name's Christian. Then he comes to a guy that's named Worldly Wise Man, and guess what? That guy's worldly. You know? And then they, you know, they end up in Doubting Castle, and what happens there? They're doubting. And then you deal with the giant despair who makes them despairing. Now, all these people are obvious, right? There's a guy named Faithful. You figure, oh, it must be a good guy. There's a guy named Hopeful. That's a good guy. You know, there's, you know, if your name's treacherous in that, like, don't trust the guy. Like, it's pretty straightforward. Okay, so um, that's kind of a very obvious allegory. There's others where they don't name all the characters and make it so obvious. Um, Paul's saying that the story of Abraham and Sarah and Hagar functions in that way. But the difference is, and get this, the story in Genesis is real history. Okay? These are events that really happen, real people, and like Pilgrim's Progress, I don't want to ruin that for you. Um, that's not a real story. That's an allegory. That's not a real story. This is a real story that functions as an allegory, which is pretty crazy when you think about it, that God has orchestrated that real historical people and places and events would foreshadow and point to things about the gospel in Christ. That's pretty amazing. Anybody can kind of write a story, 
But it's another thing to write human history in a way that it's a story that points forward to Christ and is an allegory as well. It's impressive. It's amazing. And so, and this is something that shouldn't surprise you if you realize that the whole Old Testament, guys, points to Christ. Whole Old Testament points to Christ. I was just thinking through the first five books of the Bible, you know. Jesus is the greater Adam, right, who passed the test. The first Adam failed. Jesus is the promised seed of the woman, Genesis 3, who will crush the head of the serpent, right? Jesus is the better Abel, whose blood also cries out, but it cries out for mercy instead of for judgment. Jesus is the true ark, who saves us from the judgment flood to come, right? Jesus is the promised seed of Abraham, who is the one who will bless all nations. Jesus is the ultimate Isaac, sacrificed by his father to, to save us. Um, Jesus is the better Bethel, the true stairway to heaven. Jesus is the ultimate Joseph, who endured injustice to spare his brothers. Jesus is the prophet greater than Moses. Jesus is the great I am, who Moses spoke to in the burning bush. Jesus is the ultimate Passover lamb. Jesus is the rock that was struck in the wilderness to give his people life-sustaining water. Jesus is the true manna, the bread from heaven that gives us food and, and gives us life. Jesus is the ultimate tabernacle, the place where God meets with his people. Jesus is the great high priest who made the ultimate sacrifice and intercedes for us. Jesus is the true Sabbath rest from all our labors. Jesus is the bronze serpent who Moses lifted up in the wilderness, that if you look to him, you'll be saved. Jesus is the scapegoat that was driven out on the Day of Atonement. You know, the sins transferred from the people and then driven out. Jesus is the one who is accursed because he was hung on a tree, as is written in the law. He is the true and better Joshua who leads us into the ultimate promised land. And that's just skimming the first five books of, of the Old Testament. Isn't that amazing? That's amazing. You could just keep going. You know, Jesus is the greater Job that, you know, that suffered greatly and interceded for his stupid friends. I mean, like, you can do this over and over and over again, right? It, he's amazing. He's throughout the whole Old Testament. That's just the first five books of, of, of the Old Testament. you got 34 more Old Testament books to go. And I say this because it's really important that you know why you have an Old Testament. Take a look at your Bible. Put your finger in the beginning of Genesis, and then put your finger at the end of Malachi. Right here. Okay, that's how much Old Testament I've got. And then now take your finger between Matthew and Revelation... And this is really hard with your phone, I know. Um, okay, but don't include the concordance or maps, okay? This is my New Testament. This is my Old Testament. You kind of need to know why that's there, right? Like, this is like three quarters of your Bible, right? And it all points to Christ. It turns out that these are one scroll. This is one story together, and it's all a story about Jesus. And you miss that, guys. You miss that if you read the story about David killing Goliath, and you say, you know what? You got giants in your life, and if you'd really just trust God and throw a rock at it. It's like, no. What is, what is David about? David was a representative for the people that if he would win that great battle, the whole nation would be saved just like Jesus is for us. He is our representative on the cross. He won the greatest battle. He saved us all, right, from our enemies. And so that's an important thing to do, guys. And if you want to dig into that more, I really like this book, Jesus on Every Page, David Murray. Really good for going through the, uh, the Old Testament and seeing how it points to Christ. So what does Paul do then with this story? Okay, what he does is he, he looks at this passage in Genesis. And remember, this story is about an old man, super old, 80s at that time, that God promised he was going to give a son. And he's like, oh, well, you know, I'm going to need a young wife for that. It's like, no, 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 your old wife will be the one that will have this child. And they were childless, and they were 80 years old at that time, early on. And, and God called Abraham to trust his promise to miraculously come through on a child that would form for him, that would make him a great nation and countless descendants. 
He said, your kids are going to be like the sand on the beach. Your kids are going to be like the stars in, of the sky, right? You're going to have all these descendants. You're going to have a great nation. He's like, that's hard to do when I don't have any kids right now, right? In, in, in Romans 4, it says that Abraham's body was as good as dead. That's what, that's what Paul said. His body was as good as dead at that, part, at that point. Abraham's future, guys, depended on God's work for Abraham, not Abraham's work for God. And that was the test. Will you be blessed by your work for God or God's work for you? God doesn't need our works. God actually doesn't need anything. There's a theological word for that, aseity. He needs nothing outside himself. He certainly doesn't need us to help keep his promises. And after years, though, Abraham got antsy, right? He got antsy because he's only getting older, he's not getting any younger, and he's not getting any younger. And he, he came to a point where he didn't trust God to come through on his promise to give him a son through his elderly wife that would be the descendant that would make God's promises happen, right? And so on the advice of his wife, Abraham slept with a female slave, Hagar, to get that son that he needed to fulfill God's promise. That's the way he's thinking anyway, right? He's thinking that way. And the results were what? Disastrous, right? There was all that drama between Sarah and Hagar. There was um, Ishmael doesn't end up actually being that promised heir. And then it ends with this really sad event where Sarah's like, get rid of her and the kid, you know? And he's like, I don't want to. And then he does, right? He casts her out. And it talks about that in this text, that the, the slave son gets cast out. Now, just so you know, Paul's not saying that any of this was Hagar or Ishmael's fault, okay? At all, okay? They... She's a slave. She's an innocent victim of Sarah and Abraham's craziness, which is actually a theme in Genesis that the covenant people are causing all kinds of misery to the non-covenant people through their sin. And, um, and so he's not judging them in this. He's using it as an allegory, illustration, right? So later, Sarah did miraculously give birth. After Ishmael is born to Hagar, um, Sarah gives birth to Isaac at age 90. Um, one of the sons was naturally born. Um, Ishmael, one of, the, one of the sons, was born supernaturally, basically, Isaac. And, and what does Paul see in this? He sees that those who trust in God's promise, not in anything they can do themselves, are miraculously freeborn Isaacs. He's saying you can either be an Isaac or an Ishmael. And the way you are a freeborn Isaac is be, by being born miraculously through the, through the new birth and through nothing that you can do. It's not through works. And, and guys, this is a hard thing to wrestle with, right? Abraham was in a hard situation. I think we need to recognize that. I mean, sin, but he's in a hard situation because it's hard. Sometimes it's hard to trust God to do things that you feel like you could take care of right now in a sinful way. Like, I could sinfully take care of this myself, or I could wait and hope God's going to take care of it, right? That was the wrestle. Well, guys, even in salvation, it's that way. It seems like a safer way to go to try and ensure your own salvation through your own law-keeping. That's why these guys were attractive. It's like, okay, I'm going to believe in this Messiah I've never seen, or these guys are saying if I check these boxes, I could be saved. The box checking seems safer, right? And that's the wrestle that was happening there. That's the wrestle that Abraham was saying, having. Like Abraham with Hagar, we can try and secure our own future through our own works. That's what he sees in this. And that's what those false teachers were encouraging them to do. And he says, but those who trust in their own abilities and their own works to save themselves are slaves. They are slave-born, natural Ishmaels. The false teachers were saying, you know, if you're going to be saved through a Jewish Messiah, you need to be more Jewish and rely on the Old Testament law. And that's how you can become a son of Abraham. And what Paul's telling them to say here is like, hey, ask him this. Which son will I become? <laughs> which son of Abraham? Because he had two. Am I becoming a slave by following you guys? Or am I going to become free? And he says, you're going to become a slave if you follow them. And you're eventually going to be cast out. 
I mean, that's a really clear thing. This is not a way to acceptance before God. You see what Paul's doing here? He's showing the difference between the gospel and religion. In the gospel, we trust God to do what only he can do, right? Save us, adopt us, make us his own. In religion, we try to trust in ourselves to do something we cannot do. We can't do it. We, and, and the gospel brings freedom, and religion, legalistic religion, brings slavery. And, and you know why religion brings slavery, right? It's because you do all these things hoping that your works are going to make you right before God, but you know better, don't you? Doesn't your conscience always know better? You know better. You know it's not working. Most legalistic religions, if you ask the adherents of that, are you going to go to heaven? Are you going to get whatever it promises? They go, well, I hope so right? There's no assurance. There's no assurance because your conscience knows. You know that you're not lining up to it. You know that when you do a good work that you're like, well, was it 100% good? I kind of did it for mixed motives. And then when you use some of the bad later, you go, did that cancel out the good thing I did? In my head, where am I at? You don't know. There's all this lack of assurance. Spurgeon said this about people that try to earn their own salvation through religion. He said, the poor sinner trying to be saved by law is like a blind horse going round and round in a mill, never getting a step further but only being whipped continually. And the faster he goes, the more he works, the more tired he is, and so much the worse for him. That's what religion gets you. Religion's slavery. Religion makes you miserable, and it makes everybody around you miserable too. Just so you know. It makes everybody around you miserable too. And in verse 29, it says, just as at that time he was born of the flesh, persecuted him who was born of the Spirit. What's going on there? Well, there's this passage that Ishmael's kind of playing around with Isaac, and, and what Paul sees in that is that he's ridiculing him, you know, that, that Ishmael was ridiculing Isaac, that there was a kind of a persecution occurring. Persecution, guys, is a classic act of the legalistically religious. And you look throughout the world and you think, oh, there's such a bad history with the church and all these things the church has done. Legalistic religion has done a lot of horrendous things. Can't sugarcoat those. We can't make those right. They're wrong. But it's a normal thing that legalistic religion does. The gospel doesn't do that. People who are constantly trying to measure up, guys, to God's standard to make themselves right before God are always trying to throw people under the bus. It's part of the deal. Think of it this way. Think of if salvation to them, or maybe to you, is like a moral ladder, okay? God's at the top. You're at the bottom. And you're trying to work your way up. You will actually make yourself feel like you're further up the more people you can put on the rungs below you, right? The more people that you see as below you on a lower rung, the more in your mind, and it's imaginary, you're higher. (laughs) More people that are down there, right? Um, Philip Ryken said, whenever people who claim to be religious start oppressing minorities or hating Jews or attacking homosexuals, we can be sure that they do not represent true Christianity, even if they do it in Jesus' name. It's one thing to say out there that certain things are wrong, to say you know, homosexuality is wrong, or this is wrong, or that's wrong, and, and say what the Bible says. It's another thing to persecute those people. It's another thing to use those people as a way to prop up your feeling of righteousness. You've got to be really be careful about that, right? We need to say what the Bible says, but are we trying to kind of build a pile of people below us that make us feel like somewhere we have arrived? That's what religion does. Miss Maudie in um, To Kill a Mockingbird, she said this, sometimes the Bible in the hand of one man is worse than a whiskey bottle. Isn't that true? You ever known somebody that the Bible in their hand was dangerous? They're legalistic people, and they did a lot of harm. You'd rather go like, hey, can we trade? You'd be better off with that. You know, you're doing a lot of damage. You know, don't, please don't try to represent Jesus. You know, let's get this figured out first. Or you could give them the gospel. That would be the better one. Okay. Um, I want to talk to you a little bit about this chart. So I got this chart for you guys, religion versus the gospel. 
And I really like this, the way that Tim Keller put this together. And I really like the way that it illustrates the internals, guys, of religion versus the gospel. Because two people can go to the same church, read the same Bible, believe the same doctrine, do a lot of the same things for completely different reasons. One can be doing it out of legalistic religion while the other one's doing it out of the gospel. Um, let's look at this chart. So, um, and when I say religion here, it's not necessarily a bad term, okay? I'm using it in a bad way. Let's say re- legalistic religion, okay? We can all agree on that. Religion says, I obey, therefore I'm accepted, right? That's what religion says, you know? And if, if I feel like I'm doing the right things and I feel like God accepts me, if I've kind of fallen off here, I feel like God doesn't accept me. The gospel says, I'm accepted, therefore I obey. That's a totally different motivation structure. Um, Wayne and I were talking about this morning, there's three uses of the law. First use of the law is to point us to Christ, to show us we don't measure up and that we need Jesus' righteousness and that there's no way we're going to be able to do this on our own. Second use of the law is that it's good for society in general. It's good that people have a sense of the law in their hearts and a conscience, and so that people that aren't even Christians behave a lot better than you'd expect, right? We call that common grace. We call that um, second use of the law. I mean, it's the reason why you're able to leave your house today and you don't have a moat filled with saltwater crocodiles and you don't have three pit bulls and alarm and explosives around there, right? Your house is probably not going to get broken into because of second use of the law. It helps culture generally. Third use of the law, though, guys, is once you have seen the first use of the law and you've seen that you don't measure up and that you need Christ and that you've been accepted through Christ's sacrifice, the third use of the law is you going like, this is great. This is amazing. This is amazing that God would adopt me. I wonder how I can love him back, right? The third use of the law is this is how you can love him back. And so we love him. It says here, I obey. I accept, I'm accepted, therefore I obey. I already know I'm accepted by Christ. And so I want to respond in love to him. And his law helps us do that. Does that make sense? I won't go this slow on all of them. Uh, religion, it's motivated by fear and insecurity. I talked about that a little bit already, but religion, if you're thinking straight, will not give you assurance, okay? If you're really thinking straight, it, it's, it's run by fear and insecurity. You can see that in church culture a lot of times. People are doing what they're doing because they're afraid and they're insecure. Gospel, I'm motivated by grateful joy. Religion, I obey God to get things from God. Gospel, I obey God to get God right? God is the greatest treasure. He is my greatest delight. Um, I obey because I, I want to delight in him and resemble him, and I, I want to show him that I love, how much I love him. Um, how about suffering? Religion. When my circumstances in life go wrong, I am angry at God or myself, since I believe that anyone who is good deserves a good life, a comfortable life, right? We can fall into that thinking, you know? So if things go wrong, you think like, I've been good, God. Why haven't you given me what I deserve, what I've earned, right? That's a religious way of thinking. Or you can think, this is happening because I've been bad, you know? This is something, you know, you blame yourself because, you know, obviously you must have done something terrible. Otherwise, God would never let this into your life. Gospel way of thinking. When circumstances in my life go wrong, I struggle, but I know that all my punishment fell on Jesus. And then while God... I may allow this for my training. He will exercise it as my heavenly father in love within my trial. Um, What about criticism? Religion. When I'm criticized, I'm furious or devastated because it is critical that I think of myself as a good person. Okay? That's classic religious thinking. It's critical that I think of myself as a good person. Threats to that self-image must be destroyed at all costs. Right? Versus gospel. When I'm criticized, I struggle, but it's not essential for me to think of myself as a good person. My identity is not built on my record or performance, but on God's love for me in Christ. See the difference there? Do you see how this would create a totally different relationship with other people? Um, I'm going to skip this one and then next one. My self-view swings between two poles. 
If and when I'm living up to my standards, I feel confident, but then I am prone to be proud or unsympathetic to failing people. And if and when I'm not living up to my standards, I feel humble but not confident. I feel like a failure. What is this? This is, you know, your, your self-image. Is it based, your self-view, is it based on your performance of, of God's commands? That's religion. Or with the gospel. My self-view is not based on my moral achievements. In Christ I am, Latin phrase, simultaneously sinful and lost yet accepted in Christ. You see that? simultaneously sinful yet accepted in Christ. I am so bad that he had to die for me, but I'm so loved that he was glad to die for me. This leads to deeper humility and confidence at the same time. That's a really cool thing that the gospel gives us. Gospel gives us humble confidence. You're humble because you're right before God based on Jesus, not yourself, and your sin actually got him killed, so you're humble about that. But you're confident because you know that in Christ you're loved by him as he loves his own son. So it gives this mixture of humility and confidence. One more. Uh, religion. My identity and self-worth are based mainly on how hard I work or how moral I am. And so I look down on those who I perceive as lazy or immoral. The gospel. My, my identity and self-worth are centered on the one who died for me. I'm saved by sheer grace. So I can't look down on those who believe or practice something different. Only by grace am I, am, am I what I am. Isn't that awesome? Do you see the difference? Do you see how both people could have a Bible and go to church and believe the same doctrines but have vastly different reasons for what they do? You know, and, and I want to just address you are here. You might be here and you're not a Christian. Okay? You're not a Christian. Or you say, you know, I'm not the church-going kind or whatever you want to say. You're not a Christian. And maybe you've assumed that Christianity is column one and rejected it. And I would say, amen. Reject column one. Right? Maybe you have not rejected the gospel. Maybe you've rejected legalistic religion right? Guys, that first column is legalistic religion masquerading as Christianity. It is very unattractive, and you should reject it. It would be no better for you to go from being a slave to your sin and the idols of your culture to go to column one and be a slave to legalistic religion. Not a win. It's just slavery to slavery, right? This morning, guys, what God is offering to you is not legalistic religion. He's offering to you the gospel. He's offering you adoption, that's the difference between column one and column two. If you wrote over column one, you could write, this is what it's like to live as a slave, right, in the language of Galatians 4. And then the other one, this is what it's like to live as a son or daughter of God. First one's slavery, second one's adoption. You're being offered adoption, not slavery. And so if you're here and you're not a Christian and you haven't trusted in Christ, you've actually been very turned off by it. Look at column two. That's what God is offering you. He's offering you adoption. How did he work this adoption? 2,000 years after Sarah gives birth to Isaac, another miraculous birth happens. Way more miraculous. The virgin birth, right? That Jesus is born through Mary, through a virgin birth, uh, uh, something that only God could do. And through his perfect life and death and his stunning resurrection, he redeems us from our sin. He paid the full penalty of our sin on the cross through his body and blood, right? And then, and then he did it for a purpose. Look at verse 4. He did it so that we might receive adoption as sons. That we'd enjoy a relationship that only Jesus has been able to enjoy before. That you would have the very relationship that Jesus has with the Father. That he would give you sonship. That he would make you a son or daughter of his. That God the Father would feel for you and care for you exactly the same way he feels and cares for his own son. Isn't that awesome? That's what he's offering you. That's the gift of the gospel, is to take away your sin and give you adoption. What do we have to do to receive it? We have to do the same thing Abraham was told to do. Abraham was told, believe the promise, 
Do not try to do this by your own works. Trust in the work of God. Trust in the work God's done for you instead of your work you could do for God. So it's by faith. It's the same way that Abraham was told to trust. In Jesus, guys, we see God doing everything we couldn't do to, to, to remove your sin and make you his child. And all you have to do to receive that, guys, is believe. You know, turn from your sin, repent of your sin, and believe upon this son. Believe upon Jesus and what he's done, and he will adopt you and he'll make you his own. And what's really cool from this passage is that you will no longer be a slave, either the idols of your culture or the idols of religion, but you'll see yourself as a son or daughter of God, and it's all a gift, and he will never cast you away. Let's pray. Father, I, I pray, Lord, that you would more and more show us where we are trying to avoid you. And Lord, we can avoid you and just open sin and idolatry, or we can try and avoid you in religion. And yet, Lord, why would we want to avoid you? who have loved us like this, a father who would love us like this, that would adopt us and make us your very own child. We thank you, Lord, as we take communion, the remembrance of how that happened. Through your son volunteering himself to go to the cross, to pay the penalty for our sin, and then being raised anew. Father, I pray for everybody here that's in this room, Lord, that we would not only receive this gift, but rejoice in this gift. Lord, help us to every day gather some new insight in what you've done for us, that we'd understand more and more adoption, Lord. You've adopted people who were slaves. And so a lot of times we think like slaves. We lack the boldness, we lack the joy, we lack the confidence, we lack the humility of being a son and a daughter. And we pray, Lord, that you'd build that into us more and more, that it's more and more as we see our identity that you've given us as, as your children, that we would live like your children. And Lord, we pray that you would stir up so much joy in our hearts that we would want to do the things you've commanded. Out of joy, out of gratitude, out of love. Lord, you are our Father, and we know that you know best. Lord, instruct us to do whatever you'd have us to do it, Lord, and give us willing hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. You've been listening to the weekly podcast of the Menifee Campus of Covenant Grace Church. If you'd like to know more about Covenant Grace Church, visit us online at covgrace.org.